Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Truth About Trucking, live, hosted by Alan Smith, a 30-year OTR veteran, business entrepreneur, and motor carrier transportation consultant, specializing in assisting students and new drivers, and pushing forward to raise the standards of the trucking industry. And now, live from beautiful Citrus County, Florida, here's your host, Alan Smith. Mexico and the life they live on a daily basis and what he witnesses personally 
as it relates to NAFTA and cross-border trucking. And also on the line with us is James Linden, joining us from 4,578 miles away, all the way from the country of Norway. James has strong ties to both the U.S. and Mexico, growing up between Central California and West Texas. He's the son of a Mexican mother and an American father, and he is currently the Director of Sales and Marketing for the newest technology and freight finding services at theloadpost.com. And he was Senior Account Executive, OPI Spanish Certified in Financial Terminology, Las Cruces, New Mexico, and McAllen, Texas. And with family and friends living and working in Mexico, he has a vast knowledge in the areas of business and finance and has seen firsthand what trucking regulations can do to drivers in other countries such as Norway and the Europe, uh, you know the European countries as well. So, so what is NAFTA and what was its original goal? What has NAFTA accomplished? Who is really benefiting from NAFTA and are the Mexican people raising their standard of living because of NAFTA? Or are they worse off because of NAFTA and how safe is trucking in Mexico? Will American drivers uh, be safe traveling within Mexico and who will benefit from cross-border trucking? So these questions and more, all about NAFTA, cross-border trucking, the winners and losers coming up right here on Truth About Trucking Live. Stay with us. He said, my country, my family, my friends, and the right to be free. I'll give all if I must to protect what is precious. To me, no matter the price, I'll pay it all, and I'll do it willingly, and I won't back down, I won't give ground, all for liberty. Hey everybody, Alan Smith here with Truth About Trucking Live on Blog Talk Radio. Have you been driving a big rig for a while now and considering starting your own business as an owner-operator? Well, Lone Mountain Truck Leasing offers the best lease purchase plan in the industry. With a small down payment and monthly payments around $1,000 or less, you make the monthly payment and when the final payment is made, they hand over the title. It really is that simple. There is no big balloon payment at the end, and secondly, the truck is yours, not a lease plan under one truck and company. So if becoming an owner-operator is your goal, do it the right way. Do it the best way. Contact Lone Mountain Truck Leasing on the web at LoneMountainTruck.com or give them a call toll-free at 866-512-5685. That's LoneMountainTruck.com. And be sure to tell them that you heard about them on Truth About Trucking Live. All right, welcome back, everyone. NAFTA cross-border trucking, the winners and losers, the focus of our show this evening. Uh, Don, I see you there. You're live now, right? Yeah, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you. Boy, we're having some technical problems. I'm hitting all these buttons and nothing's working. 
Um, James uh, James Linden was on the line, but he dropped off, uh, so he'll we'll try to get him again. And uh, Diego, I don't see him yet, but uh, you know he might try to try to figure out trying to get in with Skype. Uh, so, uh, but uh, Professor is on the line, so let's welcome him, uh, Professor William Arocha of the Monterey Institute of International Studies. Uh, Professor, welcome to the show. Good evening, Alan. It's a pleasure. Well, glad to have you here. I saw I saw James Linden on there for a minute, but he dropped off, and uh, Diego may be having problems with uh, Skype, so we'll just kind of go along and see uh, see how it goes here. Uh, oh, okay, hold on. Here's James. Let's get him up here. Uh, James, hey, how you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. We're trying to get Diego on. We're having a little bit of difficulties uh, trying to get the uh, Skype issue work out with entities in Mexico City. So uh, I'm working on that with him right now. He's going to go ahead and try to call him via Skype on the uh, Block Talk uh, website. Okay, yeah, because I was trying to tell Donna before the show that, you know, right there on the page there is a, a Skype emblem or something that says dial Skype to Skype, so that's a free call. Anybody on Skype can use it. Uh, so we'll, we'll we'll hang there and see. Uh, hopefully he'll make it here. And um, uh, But anyway, glad to have you all on. And uh, Thank you. Just uh, everyone, just feel free to jump in at any time, and I'll keep my eye open for Diego. Uh, him being right there in Mexico City, we are going to try our best to get him on here. So a lot to cover in this program. So, um, and like I said, everybody, just you know, just jump in when you feel free, Donna. You know, everybody. So, I think the 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 start of it all should really should be, um, you know, if we could just define NAFTA. What was its goal? Who was it supposed to help? Um, what has it accomplished? And I think, um, Dr. Arocha, I, I think you'd be the best one to answer those questions. I'm, I'm ready for that. Sure. Yeah, well, let, well, let, well, let's just start with that then. Let's just begin with defining what exactly is NAFTA and, and what was its original goal. Well, okay, let's start with the name, which is a little tricky because even though it's called the North American Free Trade Agreement, it's more than trade. The North American Free Trade Agreement's most important chapter is actually the chapter on investment, which is Chapter 11. So it's, a, it's, an, it's an agreement between three states that, by the way, can include any other state who wants to be a member. And it's an agreement that has trade on one side, which covers goods and services, which means that the tariffs for goods are supposed to be zero between the three countries. However, every country can maintain their own safety standards, health standards, and other kinds of standards. Those are not affected by the agreement. Now, with regards to investment, this is an agreement that opens completely the three countries to investment by any of the corporations from these countries to set the shop in any of the countries that they would like to do so. So that, that's in a okay. nutshell the North American Free Trade Agreement. It should be called the North American Free Trade and Investment Agreement. Yeah. Okay, and that, that's the Chapter 11 of, uh, of the NAFTA, so you're, you're pretty much just saying it's, uh, uh, it, it's pretty much just solely an investment agreement. Well, it, 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 it's open to trade in the sense that uh, the countries can, have, can export goods with zero tariffs, but it's also an agreement that focuses very much on opening the countries for direct investment in any sector, except for the case of Mexico oil. 
Okay, so on that case, uh, and Donna, we had talked about this earlier. I mean, if it's investing, then uh, who's really so who's benefiting? Benefactors. Are, a lot of the people are saying that um, you know, uh, well, Mexico is is really going to benefit, and we should be encouraging this. And uh, I'm just not I'm just not sure uh, from what we see if Mexico is really benefiting all from. Uh, from NAFTA, and I know when you and I had spoken um, yesterday, the day before, uh, we started to talk about the different um, sectors, that yeah, there is uh, people benefiting in Mexico, however, uh, not in the sector that, you know, you think they are. Well, I mean, it's, it's clear that, that there are benefits, they're, they're, as you as your show clearly states, there's losers and winners. Uh, the 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 main foreign direct investment has been obviously going towards Mexico because that's the country that has the structure wage in which uh, wage is all lower than in the United States. So the, the, the foreign direct investment has gone mainly towards Mexico. In that sense, it's clear that uh, you know certain Mexican workers have benefited from that investment, but it's, it's the main benefit is from the corporations uh, that are that are using Chapter 11 for the investment, not necessarily the workers. Okay, and when we had spoken, we had spoken about the different sectors: tourism, government, blue collar, agriculture, and so forth. Um, I understand that the agriculture uh, sector is is really suffering. And um, an interesting thing that you had told me was that um, when when all those tariffs were put in place, and and people, you know, on the United States, because we weren't we weren't agreeing with with our end of the bargain, those tariffs really weren't helping small U.S. farmers, but they were actually hurting um, hurting corporations. So it wasn't really the, the farmers per se in America but rather the, the farming corporations. Can you expand on that a little more for people? Sure. I mean, let's not forget one thing. Uh, when NAFTA was negotiated, there's one item that the United States did not give up, and that was the subsidies towards the agricultural sector. But let's be careful. When we talk about the agricultural sector in the United States, we're talking about mainly large corporations that are producing uh, highly competitive grains such as corn, soybeans, which, by the way, were uh, the most competitive uh, produce of grains that the Mexico has traditionally produced. So the main companies that have benefited from this are the Monsantos, the Cargills, that have set also shop in Mexico. Now, you're talking about subsidies at the tune of $20 billion a year in the U.S. The Mexican government has kept certain subsidies uh, in the agricultural sector, but those are subsidies that maybe amount to maximum $1.8 billion a year. So you can see the difference right there. And those subsidies that the Mexican government is giving are also towards large corporations that are coming as investors under Chapter 11 to the Mexican agricultural sector. So both the Mexican family farmers and the American family farmers 
are obviously not benefiting from these subsidies. Dr. Rocha, you mentioned uh, this is one of the reasons why you resigned from the from NAFTA um, because it also had to do with uh, how the indigenous people were being uh, marginalized uh, in Mexico because of this, and and that. Uh, that they do make up 50% of the population, but this also has to do in conjunction with uh, policies that were put into place, such as uh, Article 27 of the Mexican Constitution. Could you elaborate a little bit further on that to kind of give a perspective uh, to the listeners to understand the scenario that was put into place for, for this to happen? Well, one of the main conditions to continue the negotiations, particularly on the U.S. side, due to the fact that the Mexican government could not give up its control over oil, was to uh, adjust or, or, or change certain paragraphs from Article 27 of the Constitution that uh, did not permit uh, the communal lands to be either rented or sold. When Article 27 of the Mexican Constitution changes, what it does is that it permits an undercapitalized agricultural sector to sell or rent its land. Land that was mainly in the hands of uh, both indigenous uh, communities and peasants that under a system called the ejido uh, were to maintain the tenure of the land. With this change, what happened is that we saw large American corporations and even some Mexican corporations come and take those lands. I insist the American and even Canadian corporations came in under Chapter 11, which is the investment chapter. Now, this, what, did this, what, what, what this did, of course, was dislocate the agricultural sector because, as you can imagine, just like it's happening in the, in the United States, the small farmers, in the case of Mexico, the, the peasant communities in, in the indigenous communities could not compete against the Cargos or the Monsantos. I mean, they can't do it in the United States either, by the way. So one interesting data that I would like to share with your listeners is that 1994 all the way to 2008, even 2010, we've seen a 400% increase in undocumented workers from the agriculture sector in Mexico. Why? Because they can't continue competing with these big corporations, including, of course, the goods that are coming across the border, the cheap corn, the cheap apples. The, uh, you know, I mean, these, these are products that are highly subsidized in the United States. So the domestic market in Mexico has been completely disrupted. Well, and due to the fact that um, Mexico wasn't going to give up its oil, uh, did this also promote an expansion of the manufacturing sector in Mexico? Well, let's be clear here. What we, what we have seen is an expansion of the assembly lines in Mexico. And we have Correct. to distinguish this between the manufacturing sector. So at the border, and even in central Mexico, cities like Toluca, like Mexico City, uh, certainly Puebla, they've seen an expansion of what we call the assembly line or the maquiladora system. And that is a highly labor-intensive system that, by the way, mainly engages women. Uh, not, it's a very gender-based system. But what we have not seen in Mexico is an increase in the manufacturing sector where you go beyond just the assembly line. Correct. 
Okay. Okay. Let, let me jump in here. This might be Diego on here. I'm not for sure. Um, uh, anyway, Diego, yes, or are you? Diego. Hey, you made it, huh? Yeah, it took me a while, but I'm here. I'm sorry, <laughs> well, guys. I, Oh, that's fine. Hey, it's great to have you here. You're in Mexico City, and uh, I figured that had to be you because it was a funny-looking number that I'd never seen before. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm glad you made it, and you've been on for a little bit listening. And, you know, one thing I was really glad to have you on here with the professor and, and James is, I mean, you're there. You live there. You work with them. That's your country. And and what we've been hearing from the professor so far, you have actually eyewitnessed and uh, I mean, you 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 see what what's going on there. Well, first of all, I think uh, yeah, definitely. It, it, when, when it comes to saying has an NAFTA agreement worked for everyone or has it worked at all? Well, yes, you can say uh, the, the numbers. I mean, the commerce between both nations has increased by twelve percent every year. And if you just put into that context, in the context of the big corporations, as Doctor said before then, uh, well, yeah, you can say, hey, hey, it's working for somebody here. But we haven't, I mean, when, when we came into, into, into this trade agreement, we didn't look into what it was going to do. Into, I mean, if, we, if both nations get into an, an, in, into an uneven circumstance into this treaty, what was it going to do to the social texture? What was it going to do to farmers? And that, that, that landscape has been completely transformed. It has been... Um, Destroyed, if you want to say. It. Well, Donna, I mean that's that's not what we hear though through the media, though, is it? I mean, we hear that you know it's been good. Well, I think um, I think the the farming, I think the agriculture has suffered, and I think that has led to. And tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, has led to a lot of the immigration that we see, and. Uh, these people are just displaced, and where else are they desperate? And so they come to the uh, farming into the United States. Am I correct? What, if I can jump in here for a moment. Sure. Uh, and, and, of course, I'm, I'm echoing um, Diego. Uh, I want to clarify. It, it's not that the farming in Mexico has collapsed. It's just that we've seen a radical change in which the losers or the peasants and the indigenous people, but the highly competitive large corporations, mainly U.S. and Canadian corporations, have increased their investments on certain grains and, and foods that are highly competitive in the American market. Now, the subsidies that the U.S. gives are to things like cotton, soybeans, corn, even rice, those were the highly competitive, uh, by the way, export grains of Mexico under the collective system protected by Article 27. So just like in the United States, it's the small farmer who is suffering, not the large corporation. Well, Mexico was probably producing... Go ahead, Diego. Bye. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. By the time Mexico got into NAFTA, it was promised that there was going to be works for everyone. That's what, that was one of the original goals from, from NAFTA. And Mexico was, to a certain degree, I would say like 80% self-sufficient in terms of, of, of food consumption. And that has changed. We're already importing 60% of our grains from the United States because of what, what uh, the doctor said. 
Um, actually, it's it's we have we have a, a, a good balance. If you say if you see just commerce and imports, we we are the biggest uh, partner with the United States. But when it comes to food and and, and agriculture. Uh, these big corporations, as you mentioned, as you mentioned, and, and these hugely subsidized, these highly subsidized um, American farmers have completely destroyed, in a sense, the the the, the, the life of, of of farmers. Most of the migrants you see working in the United States were people that had just the same work down down the border, probably not so industrialized, and and and, and probably not working for Cargill, not working for any anyone like Monsanto, not, not working for the, the big corporations. And of course, it has created big corporations in Mexico as well. And and these big corporations, in their turn, have destroyed the small farmers because of unfair competitions. But to, to, let me put this into perspective: for every twenty thousand dollars the U.S. gives to an American farmer. The Mexican, the Mexican government gives seven hundred dollars, and I think that's 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 the, the way these unfair competition is, is presented. Okay. What about blue collar workers in Mexico? What about the factories? Um, I mean, a lot of the farmers have gone to the factories. That's okay. right. Should I come in or or someone yeah, else? Yeah, just, yeah, no, you, you, you okay, can just jump well, in any time. Okay, well, again, I, I mean, let me just uh, follow up really quick on what Diego was saying, which, by the way, I, with whom I totally agree. Just add one more number. Eighty uh, percent of the subsidies that the Mexican government gets, gives in the agricultural sector go to large corporations, including American corporations in Mexico. So I just want to clarify that, which is very problematic, again, for the small Mexican farmer that who is indigenous or or a peasant who has lived in commun on communal land. Now, the blue-collar class in Mexico, we have to be careful. Uh, the assembly line, which again uh, hires mainly women, is, is, is perhaps the lowest in the chain of production. So the wages are going to be quite low. And if, and if you put in the gender issue, they're even lower because women, just like in the United States, make an average of 15 to 20 or 25 percent less than men. So here we have a structural problem all over the continent. Now, one of the problems that Mexico has suffered is that more than 80 percent of the economically active population uh, is involved in the medium and small size companies. And one of the problems with NAFTA is that those are the companies that obviously cannot compete uh, against the large uh, transnational corporations that have been there before, but that have been reinvesting in Mexico under Chapter 11. So one of the dramas that Mexico has been seeing is a large amount of an informal sector that is growing due to the fact that uh, these transnational corporations, except for the maquiladora system, are not anymore as labor-intensive as the manufacturing sector in Mexico before NAFTA was. So that's, that's a really serious problem that we have to acknowledge right there. It, it's also, it has also extended to the point in which these huge corporations have totally, well, buy and per competition by just using uh, market prices have, have diminished 20, at least 20% of, of all these small family-owned businesses. Correct. Okay. 
Uh, all right, so y'all are agree with that. Let me grab a caller here real quick. Been hanging on for a line out of a uh, calling from uh, Pennsylvania, area code four one two. Go ahead, you're on the, you're on the air. Yes, hi, Alan. Uh, this is Damien. How are you? And Ron is doing. Oh, we're good. Good. Thanks for calling. Hey, uh, week two, uh, I really, uh, so, I didn't hear you say what now? Oh, okay. Well, we dropped off. All right, so, uh, got a lot of, Donna, you having some noise in the background? No, I have no noise at all. Oh, well, it may just be my headset, uh. I mean, just uh, a lot of a lot of people on the line there, so maybe that's just interfering. So, okay, so where were we? Well, let's go. Uh, you know, Diego. First, I want to I want to get in here too, real quick. Uh, um, you're a documentary film director. Tell us a little bit about you know what you do and you know the documentary documentaries that you make. Well, I'm currently working on a documentary which is about the. The 1994 crisis, which is exactly related to, to the uh, NAFTA free trade agreement during the government of, of Carlos Salinas de Gortari. And uh, this, this would be like the second part, a continuation of another documentary, which, is, which was called the, national, uh, the Present Decision about the nationalization of the bank system in Mexico. And uh, well, these latter documentary, the, the one about the, the, uh, the latest crisis, um, goes on the uh, the, this period of time in which Mexico was recovering from, from a big, very big crisis and was actually starting to privatize everything. And this, this is exactly the period in which, in which um, neoliberalism was all in the rage. And, and it was just like the, the, the regular coin for, for every growing economy in, in the world, especially since the governments were shortening up a little bit and they, they just didn't, didn't want to spend in, in so many parastatales, which are like... Uh, businesses owned by, by government. And uh, that's what I do. Uh, I also, um, uh, I, I, I sometimes I, I make smaller documentaries for NGOs like Oxfam, uh, which is a very, uh, if you guys have Oxfam in North America, and, uh, or, or some other smaller NGOs in my country. And, and, and I, what we usually do is we, we, we make campaigns in order to, um, to and I, I don't know, just make people conscious about what they are, they are eating and what what, what their choices they what choices they are making. Okay, yeah, and we have your we have your links uh, up in the show description as well as the link to uh, Professor Oracho. So Diego, let me ask you just real quick. Uh, I'm, you know, and if I repeat myself, I'm just kind of having a little trouble hearing, but. Um, I'll just ask you straight. I mean, are the Mexican people any worse off because of NAFTA? Well, the, the Mexican people in general, I, I think we are. I think we are. I think the people that has and that usually benefit from these disagreements are are not us. It's not coming from my pocket. Even when I import one thing, I, I order it from Amazon. You know, I pay all my taxes. I pay so many taxes. You you, you wouldn't believe the the price of things in Mexico. The same things you you, you guys pay and and, and are and, and and receive more competitive prices for. We pay more, but but that's not the problem. I mean, the problem is that we are we are into a treaty, which has forced us to trade most of our goods, most of our agricultural goods, to a country that that it's it's always um, you know it, it has its own markets. Like for instance, if you put an avocado in Mexico, in, in Mexico it used to cost nothing as well as a tortilla before uh, nationalization, of course, and before privatization, of course. 
of course, uh, there, there are subsidies that, 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 that are, are missing, that are, are gone, that, that used to be here before 1994. But, uh, but how about one person here in Mexico City, one person in Oaxaca trying to buy one avocado when this, this avocado has an international uh, price? And, and, and you just can't compete with the prices in, in Michigan or in New York State, or, and for that matter. So yes, we're we're definitely uh, devastated. I mean, if you visit if you visit the rural areas in Mexico City, there are complete towns with missing men, and nobody, no men are there. Only only women and children, women and children. And you see sometimes you see houses, sometimes you see uh, trucks, and that's 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 uh, the Mexican workers sending back the, the money from the states. That's what's going on. But but culture, tradition, theater, they're definitely affected. Well, well, this brings us back, um, uh, Dr. Arrocha, to what we were talking about. And we had yeah. said, you had told me that 60% of the people are not benefiting. And then I asked you, well, who is benefiting? And um, I guess it's tourism. Is tourism benefiting? No, I mean, I mean uh, what, what we have to clarify here is that it's clear that the... The classes in Mexico, the managerial class in Mexico that is linked to the corporations that are benefiting from the North American Free Trade Agreement are definitely the winners in this agreement. Um, Mexico has a managerial class that is very powerful. Uh, The uh, Mexicans that are linked to certain corporations, even the working class that is linked to certain corporations that have been able to invest further, have been able to benefit. But the problem is that this goes a little beyond NAFTA. One of the pressures to uh, conclude NAFTA and to maintain NAFTA has been also based on a state that has been divesting itself from uh, one of the main actors of development in the country. So what we've been seeing also is a state, very similar to the United States, by the way, at both the federal and the state level, we're seeing a state that is not creating jobs anymore. We're seeing people that were working at different levels in the state that don't have those jobs anymore. So, and, and that is part also of the privatization process in Mexico. And as I was telling yeah, you, we're yeah. seeing... I mean, we're seeing also a huge informal sector that obviously doesn't pay taxes but also doesn't receive the benefits that the state could offer. So those, that's a population that's suffering. But there's definitely a population in Mexico that's gaining from NAFTA. It's just that it's a very small percentage. I would like to, I would like to contribute to this point. Um, I think, uh, yeah, well, for instance, you could say there, there's been an investment from uh, American money and from all, all over the world money for around well, around three three hundred billion dollars, I think. And um, if if you consider that we have probably I don't know I, I'm not saying probably I'm saying as a fact uh, sixty billion dollars have been produced by these corporations, these mainly international corporations, not Mexican corporations. That, that, that's something I want to, to be clear. Because when, when you put an international corporation on the border, what happens is that these people, what, what do these people do with this revenue? Are they going to contribute to the well-being of, of, the, of the border? No. They just take out, took out 
$60 billion to the financing markets in the United States, and we don't see that money. It's not being invested. It's not, it's not creating better jobs. It's not creating a better generation in the country. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I would, I would have to echo Diego on this one, of course. Okay, and, and James, let's pull you in here because you kind of have a different different aspect to this whole thing because you're, I mean, you experience, uh, you know, all these things, in, you know, in Europe, and you sit back and you know what's happened there, you've seen it, and you see that uh, same thing that you've witnessed in, in throughout Europe is you're seeing uh, happening here. Well, when it when it comes specifically to the trucking industry, that there's uh, being policies that are put into place that uh, limit uh, the individual productivity of the person. Um, but I'd like to reiterate something that I heard uh, Ms. Dr. Rocha say in a previous interview about uh, structural adjustment funds and uh, investing in in uh, you know different infrastructure or social uh, policies that will will be responsive to a labor market, not just for Mexico, the United States, or Canada, but for all countries. But there has to be uh, an infrastructure put in place that, that benefits, uh, benefits the, the, each individual country. Um, Dr. Alberto, would you like to, to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, let me, let me bring an interesting index that I would like to share with all our listeners, because maybe this is not well known. Uh, Many governments, including the U.S. and Mexico, uh, beyond NAFTA, have been following of implementing policies that we clearly see have been creating a huge inequality in the distribution of family income. And let me share this data. Uh, the index is called a Gini, and it's an index that measures the inequality in that distribution. And it's not a coincidence that Mexico and the United States right now share almost the same Gini index. What do I mean by this? That both states have been slowly divesting themselves, they've been retreating themselves in the creation of social capital, in the creation of the protection of their people, basically, through health benefits, education, and other infrastructure. On the other hand, what this has been, and, and by the way, also by, by lowering the taxes on the 10 percent wealthiest people in the countries. So what, we, what we've been seeing here in both countries is a very similar inequality in the distribution of family income, which therefore translates to an inequality in the purchasing power of citizens. And I don't think we're fully aware of this in the United States. Yeah, I I don't think so either. Do you, Donna? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I have a, a big question, and, and I know a lot of people are must be wondering this also, because this is confusing to many people. If if Americans are losing jobs, and they're saying, well, we're, we're being outsourced, and you're saying that, well, Mexico isn't benefiting, and obviously, you know, they're not paying the same uh, rates as they would an American worker. So, was, yeah. was this really what was meant to be? I mean, I, then later on we're going to address, you know, the cross-border trucking and how this is all going to uh, relate to that. I know there's a big discussion also 
that greater exports equals more jobs, which which should mean that we have a great number of jobs over here in the U.S., which isn't the case. And um, I think that's a, a, a myth that really needs to be defined. Um, this okay. Exports equals more jobs. If, if, if you'll let me begin, um, I think when when the, the, the free trade agreement began, uh, we were in a totally different context, in a totally different situation. Uh, let's remember uh, the, the, the the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, at the end of the 80s and uh, probably the opening of, of Asia, uh, you know, of trade with Asia. It was something that was just going on. It was a, just beginning, but Mexico was just right there down the border. We were were cheaper labor right there down the border, and um, and we were we were going to make an interesting um, you know trade between these countries with traditional goods, and and that will change because there's something. I mean, the, the, the world is not just like a break, which is to see what has changed, what they promised, and what has changed. The thing, and and, and and this goes to also to relate a little bit with with last answer of the professor Rocha is that. Um, Yes, we have the same structure of distribution of the of economy, and that means that the, the same people are controlling the money in, in the same and even ways. And, lo, and the loyal and money has no loyalty. Money has only loyalty to, to, towards more money, and that's why people are shortening. That's why people are firing more people in, in order to all the jobs that were supposed to be created up north in Paris. Well, many have been created, but so many have just moved to Asia, and that's that's because that's where money loyalty lies. Where is the cheaper labor? And we lost. You guys lost. Now we are poor and we are hungrier. And you, you guys have a more stable country. We go there and we work there. Right. Yeah. That's. I mean, I, I, I have to echo Diego on this. I mean, uh, what, what, what corporations are looking for? We know this. It's cheap labor. So now you have the Chinese market open for that, with one billion. Chinese that still don't have jobs, uh, when you have India that has opened up, when you have Vietnam, when you have Cambodia, uh, it's clear that you're going to see a shift, but th that's why you keep the assembly line. That's your focus. Uh, see, you don't go to manufacture because manufacture demands deepening the investment, but if you just keep it at the assembly level, it takes you 24 hours to dismantle an assembly line in Ciudad Juarez. 24 hours you can dismantle an assembly line. And in 48 hours you can have that assembly line in Cambodia. That's the oh. reality. That's appalling. That's just appalling. That's just what? Appalling. I mean, I just say, that's, that's impressive. That's just sad. And, yeah, and not only that, under Chapter 11, any corporation that is in any of the three countries can transfer its capital, all its capital assets, with no delay in what it takes you to push a button. There are no capital controls in the three countries. So capital can flee any of the three countries with no capital controls. And furthermore, let, let me aggregate that under Chapter 11, no corporation is obliged to transfer technology, which is what would have helped Mexico really develop and integrate the American working class with the Mexican working class. 
All this, I think, goes to uh, to one thing only. Uh, if, if, you, if you really ask me what went wrong with, with uh, this trade agreement, I'd say it's regulation. It's always regulation. What happened, the American, the, the 2008 crisis in the United States, it's about deregulation. It's, it's about putting the first circumstances. We cannot go into these kind of treaties if we're not at the same level. I mean, wherever has the European, the, the European Union had a, a working uh, trade agreement, a working union, it's because, mainly because they, they, they try to get in in even circumstances to begin with. And, well, that's not the case. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Uh, Donna, you'll have to help me a little bit. I'm just having a little hard time hearing. Okay. Um, well, you know, I think I think the bottom line is that you know we we pretty much said that NAFTA isn't giving us jobs, and it's it's not it's giving Mexicans jobs, sort of, but they're paid very low, and and they're in worse shape than they are. It, it sounds like the farmers are in really bad shape. Um, and now we we come to opening the borders now with this um, pilot program, and I would think that a lot of people would want to investigate uh, getting their, their their commercial driver's license in Mexico, and um, I mean they're they're out to feed their families like everybody else, and this has nothing to do uh, about any kind of racial. Thing that a lot of people try to make it. We're talking about two countries, two groups of people that want to make it in life, and uh, and how this cross-border trucking is, is going to fit into the scheme of NAFTA. Uh, whether it's going to help anybody, um, will will the Mexican people be helped? Are the Americans going to lose jobs? These are questions that a lot of drivers have concern for. Many drivers are concerned about the safety going down into Mexico. Um, and maybe we should start there. Is it safe to drive into Mexico uh, if, if you have a load, especially if you're an owner-operator and not driving for a big, uh, a big corporation company? Yeah, I, yeah I, was going to, I was going to touch on the safety here right after a break coming up. But let's, let's say, uh, uh, Dr. Rocha, let me ask you that, what Donna had expanded on a little bit. I mean, you know, you hear, you know, we hear sometimes, you know, the Mexican people are blaming the, you know, the the uh, American, you know, or the Mexican drivers are blaming the American drivers, the American drivers are blaming the Mexican drivers, and it goes back and forth, but would you, wouldn't you contend that uh, there is no blame between the two? I mean, really, both of them are, both of them are kind of victimized? Hey, let me put it this way, both of them are underpaid. Let's start with that. Okay. If you, work, if you don't look for, if you don't look, if you don't work for a corporation that is offering you a good health benefits, that is offering you educational benefits, uh, you're suffering. Uh, the Mexican drivers obviously have to meet, as well as the trucking companies, they have to meet both federal and state standards in the United States. The American drivers also have to meet both federal and uh, state standards in Mexico. Uh, that's not the problem. The problem is that the truckers on both sides uh, are seeing a set of increases in certain standards. However, at the same time, they're seeing a decrease 
in their benefits and in their wages in both countries. Because the system was meant for them to compete against each other. And within both countries and between both countries. Let us not forget that. Okay. All right. Good point. And uh, all right. Listen, I got to take a. I just got to take a quick break. We'll continue our discussion. And when we come back, we're going to touch on uh, the safety, the safety issue of drivers uh, traveling into Mexico. We'll get Diego on here again and uh, get Dr. Arocha's opinion on the safety and how that applies to NAFTA and the cross-border trucking, and exactly how that's going to affect. Uh, safety issues, and we'll hear a st- uh, the viewpoint from Diego himself, because he's right there. We'll be right back. I'm just trying to make a living, running the road, loving my family from a cell phone. Nobody understands, can't get no helping hand. Lord, have mercy on the, the trucking brand. From a cell phone Nobody understands Can't get no helping hand Lord have mercy on the The trucking brand On the trucking brand Hey truckers, are you tired of not being able to find a place to take a break? Are the truck stops and rest areas full at night, or you just want to take a break from the sleeper? Hotelsfortruckers.org will help you find a hotel where you can fit in. Choose from thousands of trucker-friendly hotels across America that accommodates a 75-foot-long tractor trailer, and you can get great discounts and specials through Hotelsfortruckers.org. And if you're traveling with a pet or a smoking preference or need laundry facilities, The free information on the website includes an extensive database to locate the address, phone number, and direct web links to the hotels. And if you use a hotel room at least one time per year, then you can take advantage of the $10 annual membership, which allows easy access to view hotels, which offer additional CDL trucker discounts, nationwide hotel chain discounts, and even room coupon specials. Hotelsfortruckers.org's database is comprised of the most extensive list of properties that offer the most needed trucker amenities. So visit the website today, Hotelsfortruckers.org, to find the hotel that is right for you. Hotels for Truckers was built by a trucker for truckers to help you get in where you fit in. That's Hotels, the number four, Truckers.org. Okay, welcome back. And uh, yeah, Don, I was going to get into the safety. I think that's a real good point as our time is winding down here. Um, and Diego, let's start with you because um, I mean, you're there. Is is it safe for uh, you know American drivers to uh, going to be traveling in and out of Mexico? Do you think? What, what do you think? Well, I think we should we should break this down to. Two, two different questions, and one is in which is it safe to drive in Mexican roads just because of the infrastructure, and the other one would be is it safe because of insecurity at the national level. And the, to answer the second one, which is which is the one I think you guys are more interested in, is well, 
Yeah, just in these last uh, four years of, uh, of uh, President uh, Calderon's government, nearly 40,000 people have been executed in, in, in Mexico. Of course, they would say this is related to organized crime, but I say just Mexican people dying anyway. And if you compare to that, that number, to the amount of people that have died, I mean, in, in Afghanistan and Iraq as well, I think we, are, we, come, we come on top in the last, in the last two years. So, yes, I don't think it's safe. I don't think it's safe for me. There are places I wouldn't drive in, in this country. And definitely, and there's also one thing called the rent, which goes all over the country, which is basically when you have a, a big or a successful business, any kind of business, doesn't have to be a huge corporation, but any kind of business, and someone from the cartel who wants to expand a little bit on the business comes in and asks for, for a certain money, for a quota in order to let you work. And and this is this is something typical. This is a typical situation that's not being addressed enough by the, by the Mexican government. And that's that's what that's that's the kind of environment in which in which you could easily get get in. I am not guaranteeing you I'm not guaranteeing you this is the environment in which you get in because I, I don't own a big business. But what what I can say is that um well it's something you're exposed to. And well, in going to the first part of the of the, of the question is, is well, we, we we have different roles, we have different drivers, we have different uh, you know habits of driving. I I, I drive. I mean, Americans would say I drive recklessly. I, I I think I'm responsible when I when I go at 130 clicks uh, per hour. But um, yes, we we have different traditions, we have different um, infrastructure, and I don't think we are ready to accommodate the kind of um, you know, no standards you you still you, you guys have in the states. Okay, and and uh, Dr. Rocha, I think I heard you say uh, you were talking speaking to Donna a few days or so ago, and I was kind of walking around, and I overheard uh, she asked you something about safety. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you had said something. I, I thought I heard you say something about well, NAFTA safety is really not an issue within NAFTA or something like that. Could you expand on that? Well, no, I. I, I yeah, it's not. I don't think exactly I went there, Alan. But uh, no, I mean safety is definitely an issue. Uh, it just depends on what kind of safety. If we if we talk about standards, you know, about complying with, for example, U.S. laws and regulations, or U or Mexican laws and regulations, NAFTA definitely, uh, you know, is is. I mean, the, I mean, NAFTA doesn't go against this. For example, the the Mexican truckers under the pilot uh, uh, program will definitely have to comply with uh, all U.S. laws and regulations, uh, you know, concerned uh, with motor carrier safety, customs, immigration, vehicle registration, taxation, even fuel taxation. Uh, I mean, that's something that NAFTA definitely, uh, you know, is, is, is making sure that that happens in, in both sides of the, uh, of, of the bridge. So in that sense, uh, both American and Mexican truckers have to maintain the records quite uh, straight. Uh, with regards to uh, the safety that Diego was talking, well, yeah, I mean, it's clear that neither Mexican nor American drivers are very safe driving in Mexico right now. I mean, that's just the reality due to the lack yeah. of security and, and the so-called war on drugs. Now, let me, let me make one point here with regards to Mexican truckers. The record of Mexican truckers that do cross the border to the United States usually is, is a very high record. Because the Mexican companies and the Mexican truckers uh, are, are, are trying to uphold as high 
standards that they came when they come in the United States. Why? Because it's in their benefit to make sure that they follow as close as possible the American uh, rules and regulations. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that, the success is the opposite when they cross down on south. And how about that, that, the of, of actually driving within Mexico uh, with all the all that goes on uh, with the crime? Do you feel that that would be an issue for American drivers, whether they be owner operators, or do you think that they can get uh, that's not an issue? I, I think it's an issue, but the American truckers should also understand that the insecurity in Mexico uh, is a result of two things. In the case of, of, the, of the individual insecurity, uh, NAFTA has played a role because it has created more poverty. Now, in the case of the insecurity caused because of the so-called war on drugs, let's face it, both governments have responsibility on this. Uh, the, the so-called war on drugs that President Calderon is carrying on is a result of a bilateral agreement with the United States government that also, uh, since 1972, has declared this concept of the war on drugs. It's just that the Mexican government in the past did not engage in the idea of the war on drugs. So what's happening right now is that we're seeing uh, the Mexican government uh, creating an environment for the use of the military in, in, in something that, you know, it's an illegal market, but it's not a war. I mean, there's something wrong with this policy. <laughs> do, you think, do you think, Dr. Rocha, that, um, that one of the primary reasons is that the, all of the countries don't share the, uh, the burden of, they, they, they don't share the burden of underdevelopment and uh, to tackle these issues, and that uh, they're not uh, really seriously talking about putting policies in place for social and economic uh, convergency? Well, thank you for touching that point, uh, James. Uh, one of the problems with NAFTA, which, which was resolved in the European Union, was that you can't just let the market, which, by the way, is controlled by a very small handful of highly wealthy majority shareholders, <laughs> excuse, excuse me, minority shareholders in both countries, you need, you need the states both, or three states, Canada, Mexico, and the United States, need to create funds the three levels in the three countries to make sure that there's social and economic convergence. The, the market by itself cannot do that, because the market is driven by profit only. Uh, but the problem is that most people don't understand that this does mean uh, further involvement of the states. It does mean changing the, sa the tax system. You can't just, you know, give money without paying taxes. That's the reality. <laughs> well, you would think you would think that the uh, policymakers would uh, would uh, be under the uh, pretense that it's in the benefit of their constituency. However, why do you think that the policymakers are not really instituting this? Uh, or, or not really seriously uh, having uh, really hardcore this, uh, discussions on remedying this issue? Well, there's two reasons, uh, James. One is who's paying their campaigns. Uh, we know that here and in, the, in Mexico, too. And the other reason is that a lot of these policymakers have shared since the 1990s this ideology that the market can fix everything. And they truly believe it like, as if it was a religion. Correct. 
let's keep in mind, let's keep in mind the same guys that are in Wall Street by the same companies or later on the same guys that are treasury of state in their country. I mean, they they are dictating the policies uh, and from the from the White House directly from Merrill Lynch and Goldman Sachs. That's what, what's going on in the United States. Sure. Yeah, sure. Well, James, you know, kind of reiter reiterating what uh, Diego had said a little while ago about the safety issue. I mean, you have family and friends and and you know business to, business contacts in Mexico. I mean, I know you're in touch with them all the time. Uh, you know, what's your views on the safety issue as far as American drivers into Mexico? Well, me personally, um, I would not travel. Uh, my family has uh, cattle ranches and apple orchards in El Valle Ganadero of Chihuahua, which is the uh, productive uh, part of the uh, cattle ranching community and apple orchard uh, community in the state of Chihuahua. And in order to access, uh, to, to be able to visit my family's ranch, I would have to go to Ciudad Juarez, Asuncion, uh, and then travel within the valley, um, and the risk is too high. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, I have an uncle who's in the, the trucking business on the Mexican side, and because he's become so volatile to, uh, to be able to, to conduct business in Mexico, he's already migrated to the U.S., um, and my family has been direct victims of uh, cartel violence and taxation, uh, for the for the fighting of uh, of the cartel people of the uh, of the narco corridor uh, going into the United States, so it's um it's a touchy it's a touchy issue. I wish things were a little bit different. You know, granted that there are places in Mexico that are that are tourist areas and they're relatively safe uh, because they do protect their industry. However, we have to we have to keep in mind that the 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 areas like uh, Matamoros, Reynosa, Laredo, uh, Tijuana, Ciudad Juarez uh, are are border towns. These are these I, are the areas I, I, where. I, yeah, I would I'm like sorry? to point out. I'm sorry. I, I would like to point out, James, that yeah, that that that, that thing you mentioned about your family uh, having to to move into the United States, just that's a trend. That's not just some strange case. That, that's something you always hear. If you're in a position in which you can leave the, uh, this country and raise your children there, even if you have to come back to Mexico to work during the day and go back into in the United States to sleep, that happens all the time. But it's right. not its not because they're border cities. It's because these are the cities which are where all these drug cartels are, are, are trying to push their drugs into the states. That's what's going on. And it's going on on a huge scale. Let me let, let me give you a little a little um, policy option here for the truckers of both countries. I really believe that both the American, Mexican, and even Canadian truckers need to demand to the government, particularly the American and Mexican government, to stop the so-called war on drugs. It is not working. People are losing their jobs. They're losing their lives. They're losing their dignity. And let's face it, both truckers from both countries are having the same faith. They need to keep their jobs. They need to open their roots. I, 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 want, well, to, I want to contribute to this point. I think there's something to be fair to Mexican truckers because I, I, I know this point is probably being uh, heard by many American truckers, and I want, I want to be fair to, to Mexican truckers. Goods in Mexico, most of the goods, because most of the goods are delivered by roads, are delivered by trucks. 
and they, they do a magnificent job. This is the biggest Latin American okay. market bar. So they, they, they are they are I have I have some interesting numbers I pulled down from the web, which is like um how many of the American Mexican uh, truckers, you know, deliver the goods and the and the mer merchandise on time? And it's like the number goes to 88 percent of the of, of Mexican drivers deliver on time. Yeah. On Santos, American drivers would go to 97 percent, and Canadian and and, and European um, drivers and trucker drivers would go to 98 percent. So what you guys are afraid of? I mean, you guys are obviously more competitive. And as of delivering the the, the yeah. goods, you know, intact, the complete merchandise, you guys are 94 and we're, we're 89 percent. Yes, the best. So 97, we're, we're 89 percent. I think I think when it comes to opening for Mexicans, if that's a, if, if we're having this conversation with one of before, and it was like, you want you want to protect yourself from Mexicans, just up the wages. Just make sure Mexicans get the same wages. And if I was an American corporation or an American, uh, someone who wants to to hire an, an owner trucker, and uh, I would probably hire the more competitive guy. Well, this I think this falls back on actual development uh, within all countries. If there, you know, under the the, the primary premise of, of NASA, it, it's supposed to be where people are actually. Uh, having prosperity in their own countries, but, but since there's such uh, inequity in the system, it doesn't allow um, people to have that uh, ability to, to become prosperous in their own country or to have an, an income, a stable, a stable job. And, and it has to do with the actual uh, development, the social infrastructure and social and economic infrastructure of, of, uh, of all countries. Um, I think that I think that's the, that's the main thing that sure. I, I noticed. You know, sure. this, also, this also relates to the fact that uh, you know, look at look at the cartel, the, the large cartels in Mexico. When, when you have an underdevelopment in the country, you know, the people that come from meager uh, beginnings, they actually look at these entities as a viable option, and it, sure. it shouldn't be this way. So you know, a lot of these things are interconnected in, in, in to a certain degree, and um, and we have to address them. We have to address them. Sure. Yeah, and, and Donna here, we're, we're winding down here, but Donna, the key, get back to the key focus here that we're wanting to make a point at, and you you had been hammering me on this all day long. The key point is now how is, uh, tell us again, how is uh, this big monster called NAFTA, how is it going to affect the cross-border trucking, correct? Exactly. I mean, there's questions that people are asking. Can owner-operators use this? I mean, people are saying, well, this is, we can use it to our benefit. We can make money on it. Um, you know, I'd like to see if you, when you have a lot of obstacles, um, safety being a big issue, people are concerned about it. Um, and, and um, the, co the company drivers, yes. they don't want to go uh, drive down. Owner operators are concerned. How can you see people benefiting? Who is going to benefit by opening those borders? Well, I think that the, the, the biggest the biggest uh, problem here is a cultural problem. The cultural gap between the United States and Mexico is huge. And even though we are probably the country, the second country that speaks uh, more fluently English in, in comparison to the, rest of, to the rest of Latin America, I, I think that that's, that would be a huge gap because uh, we have such different culture that 
probably an owner operator would, wouldn't just want to come and drive all the way into Guadalajara and say, well, let's have taquitos every, in, in, in every place we can, or tortas or Mexican food, or just stay in the places which are along the way. I mean, we, we are at a complete uh, different uh, infrastructure, at a complete different country. I, I just don't think they would feel at ease. So that, that makes me do think, well, who's going to drive all the goods all the way from the state? It's probably going to be a Mexican driver. If this treaty comes the way it's supposed to, I mean, probably a huge company is just going to hire Mexicans to drive them all the way inside. Well, you know what? I, I think that the um, Mexican and American truckers need to come together. I think that not just based on this show, which is obviously so important, let's not forget that most goods in both countries are delivered by truckers. <laughs> I mean, we know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys are in that business. We need to find ways uh, to bring the truckers from both countries to know each other because they can benefit. NAFTA can help them benefit, uh, but they need to organize together. They need to understand their cultural differences. They need to understand their different standards. But, that guys, at the end of the day, we're going to need trucks to deliver the goods. That's the reality. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the only thing that's not going to happen. Well, I think the biggest fear is because of the cultural differences, a lot of the uh, American drivers feel that it would benefit the uh, carriers, whether they be uh, American carriers here in the United States or uh, or (laughs) if they're in Mexico, if they set up terminals in Mexico, that because of all these differences that they're they're better off just hiring Mexican drivers uh, to, to to drive the freight. And then there's such an ambiguity in the um, cabotage laws. I know some people say, oh, when they deliver in the United States, they have to go right back uh, to Mexico, and they're not uh, allowed to drive, you know, throughout the United States to pick up another load. So we found out that's not true. I think the key of all of this is regulation, Donna, and if you let me intervene here. I think you guys have to push your legislators in order to protect your jobs. And it's it's about, um, of course, if you, if you see it from the corporation point of view and just having a carrier say, hey, who's going to be the cheaper and most willing to suffer uh, driver or driver? Well, I'm, I'm just going to hire the Mexican because he, he can work for nothing, you know? And, uh, well, you, you, you might be surprised, but it, it's actually 20% more expensive to to deliver the goods here in Mexico, mainly because, no, well, don't don't get excited. It's not just like, hey, you guys have a business here and you can earn 20% more. It's it's because of the tolls of the highways are so expensive here. These are just, this is just one of the differences. But I think I think what, what doc, Dr. Rocha is giving us signs, which are very hopeful. Let's, let's try to make a better thing together. And this, I think, goes down to legislation, to plan everything from the beginning, you know, to be able to, to see, hey, who's going to drive here and why is it going to drive here and why is it important to, to build a fair trade, not not hurting the, the, the workers. Sure, sure. Hey, let's, gra- let's, grab a cu- let's, let's, let's grab a couple callers here real quick as time is winding down. A uh, caller from uh, uh, Idaho, area code 208. Go ahead, you're on the air. Hello, sir. My name is John, and... Uh, 
I just have a question. Uh, I read that the North American Free Trade Agreement has never been ratified by the United States Congress. Is that true? All right. Dr. Rochev, can you answer that? I couldn't fully get the question, Alan. Can you redress the question to me? Uh, yeah, caller, say it one more time, because I'm having a little trouble hearing you, too. Go ahead. It has been ratified. O'Donnell, did you hear it? Yes, that the Congress hasn't 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 ratified the the uh, North American Free Trade Agreement. Is that the question? The question is: Has Congress, the United States Congress, ratified the North American Free Trade Agreement because it's considered a treaty under our Constitution and it must be ratified by Congress? Has North Congress ratified it yet? I got it. North American. Okay. The North American Free Trade Agreement is the law of the land. It's been ratified by Congress, and every single rule has to be applied based on constitutional law. And it's above a constitution because it's an international treaty. Which yes, which which means, by the way, when it comes to truckers, that NAFTA does permit Mexican truckers as well as American and Canadian truckers to go across the whole continent with no further barriers except for the state standards, as long as they meet the federal standards, except for certain state standards. Because that is the law of the land. Okay. So, that answer your question? All right. Hey, thanks, thanks, for, thanks for calling. Appreciate it. One more caller. I think this is uh, Rich Wilson of transproducts.com. Rich, is that you? Yep. Uh, welcome uh, to the show. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to throw in a little bit there. Uh, three years ago, under the first proposal, um, I did government contract work to go down and do um, the same as a basic entry-level qualification on uh, Mexican carriers. Um, and uh, as Alan well knows, one of the carriers that I went to um, would definitely not have met the the general standard compliance of U.S. Uh, you know federal regulations uh, for safety. And um, all the guy wanted to talk about was how much was it going to cost him, you know, to to pay the money so you know he could get his uh, certification to come into the United States. Um, and then another issue that recently came up, uh, and I think one of the uh, guests addressed that, was, and, and one of the things we're trying to find out on a compliance and, 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 and regulatory standpoint is what the Mexican rules, you know, uh, the federal rules are uh, for transportation and trucking, and that um, there's a problem they're also going to have with the individual states. Um, you know, they pull an American trucker, you know, over, and then all of a sudden they tell him he has to do this or he has to do that or he can pay a certain amount of money. Um, and then the the third issue, um, which has been recently addressed at a hearing I was at, was drivers being kidnapped and held for ransom against the companies in Mexico. And I wanted to uh, ask the, the guests on their opinion on that and the reality of that happening. Well, well I mean, th these are three different big issues. The first one with regards to regulations. 
remember that both countries are federal republics. So you're going to have federal regulations and you're going to have state regulations. And this, this is for both countries. And that is always a problem of communication. Companies have to make sure that when they cross states, both in Mexico and the United States, that they understand the different standards that are federal and that are state. Now, the second part of your, of your question, uh, you know, I mean, uh, if, if a Mexican company doesn't want to know the U.S. regulations, uh, they're not going to be able to get in, as simple as that. So they're going to have to learn, and someone has to communicate them those regulations. Now, the third one is security. That one goes beyond the North American Free Trade Agreement. And then the fourth that you kind of mentioned was corruption. Uh, you know, and we all know here, that when it comes to truckers, corruption is a big problem in both countries. Well, you know, the thing about it is, Mexican truck comes into the United States and he crosses the border. If he gets pulled over on a scale in Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, they, the standardization of CBSA, you know, of the inspection standards and, and 49 CFR, which is adopted by all the United States, is a, is a, is a singular standard that's, that is set for every trucker in every state in the United States. And when you have a DOT officer does does an inspection on a truck in Texas or New York or New Hampshire, the same standards and the same inspection criteria is there. Uh, you know, the thing is, um, there's no guarantee of that. Uh, you know, and I'm not just saying, you know, it, it may not be everywhere, but I know some of the areas, especially when you get out in some of the more rural areas, because I know where I was at was a very rural area. And, you know, um, the, 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 the company, you know, the, the, the newest truck they had was like 20 years old. And, you know, the, the tires, you know, were, were you know, were, were old nylon tires and were, were dry rotted. And, and you know, um, the truck just wasn't, you know, even of a, any kind. I mean, it wouldn't even meet agricultural standards. It wouldn't even be tagged. But... Um, that's what I'm saying. I mean, any Mexican trucker that comes into the United States and gets pulled over on a scale and gets inspected is going to have the CVSA standard. Does Mexican ex Mexico accept and adopt the CVSA standard of inspection, which is, you know, supposed to be for North America? Well, you know, well, it's supposed to be for the United States because each state their own domestic laws, so it's not a continental uh, rule. Uh, now, remember, again, it's a problem of development. Uh, for us in North America to maintain those standards, which, by the way, I fully agree with them, uh, it, costs, it costs money. So one of the problems that we're having in the rural areas in Mexico is that both municipal governments and state governments don't always have the funds to maintain, except on federal roads, those kinds of standards. Uh, I mean, your, your point is well taken. Uh, now, obviously, that trucker with a 20-year-old truck is not going to be able to come into the United States. Point. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, listen, uh, uh, time's winding down here. Uh, uh, we'll have to do this again. We'll have to uh, see how everything goes and get everybody back on and do this again. But, Professor Rocha, thanks again for uh, for joining this evening. I really appreciate it. Hey, Alan, uh, Donna, J uh, James, and uh, Diego, it was a pleasure having you sharing all these ideas with you guys. Well, we really... Yeah.
Thank you so much. I would like to just ask one quick question, if I may. Sure. Okay, uh, I just want to ask uh, Dr. Rocha and Diego, uh, in your sincere opinion, yes or no, under the present condition, <laughs> is NASA going to be able to be fair and sustainable? Is, is uh, it going to be able to come again, James, please? Can you say it again, James? Yes, that under the present condition, uh, do you feel that uh, NASA will be able to be fair and sustainable? Uh, it's unfair to begin with, uh, NASA. I, I don't think I don't think it's, it's sustainable in that sense. I mean, it's it's not it's not a, a fair condition to begin with. Uh, but if, if we go ahead to what what I think is most important for you guys about trucking, I think standards should be met and we shouldn't be afraid of stepping it up. I think ideally we have much more to lose if we don't learn how to integrate and learn from us culturally, even if we don't do this in 10 years, if, even if we don't do this in 20 years, we have to be able to make this in 20, you see? We have to be able to to to, to even enough these cultural gaps and these, these standard gaps between the other two countries so that, so that an American uh, trucker can drive all the way into Mexico and learn from it. It's an enriching experience, and, and, and probably very much the same way to drive into other states. My point is very simple. NAFTA will only work if the three governments pull together their funds to try to develop the underdeveloped regions of the three countries. Well, well, uh, good luck. Good luck with that, I guess. I agree, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's real interesting. You brought up the investment, the Chapter 11, and that that share that uh, that gives a uh, whole new whole new light and new meaning to the NAFTA agreement. So, but um, thanks again, Professor. I appreciate you being on the show. My pleasure. And um, Diego, I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you were able to uh, get in from Mexico City. Uh, appreciate you being here and sharing your expertise with us. Took me a while, Alan, but I'm very very glad you guys invited me. And by the way, you do guys have a beautiful show. Keep it up. Oh, thanks, Thank thanks, and and we we want to do this again. So we'll uh, we'll stay in touch and uh, we'll we'll keep up on this thing as it progresses and. And James, uh, all the way there in Norway, you know, as usual, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much thanks. for allowing me to participate. And thanks for helping us coordinate it. Yes, ma'am. My pleasure. <laughs> all right. Be safe. And, uh, and listen, you can find the web links to Professor Rocha and Diego in our show's description to learn more about them. And uh, as Donna said, special thanks to uh, James Linden for his instrumental role in bringing this uh, show together for you this evening. Uh, winding down here, Donna, wrapping it up, you have some special news, I think, about Jason's Law, right? Yes, we do. Um, yesterday, on May 11th, um, we had a, a wonderful victory. Uh, there was unity within the, the trucking. Oh, where'd you go? Oh, I lost you. All right. You come right over here, and we'll just keep going here. Okay. We had... Uh, a great event as Congressman Paul Tonka uh, had a press conference in Washington. Uh, Hope Reivenberg was there, and uh, so was uh, Todd Spencer of OIDA, Lisa Mullings of uh, NATSO, Richard Henderson, the Director of Government Affairs for the Commercial Vehicle Safety Alliance, 
Paul Oakley from the American Moving and Storage, Mary Phillips from the American Trucking Association. And this is a, a tremendous uh, victory for the Unity for Jason's Law for more safe truck parking. Um, this is just the, the first step, by the way. Um, the new the new HR number for Jason's Law, which was introduced, is HR one eight zero three, and uh, Hope Rivenberg. We've spoken to her, and she's going to start her lobbying uh, again to get more co-sponsors. Um, there is already one co-sponsor. Um, uh, I, I can't remember who it is, but it is a bipartisan, and I believe it's Congressman Paulson in Minnesota, so I hope I'm right on that. It's not in my notes, but we're real excited about that. And also, um, this is the time, now that it's been introduced, that we start making our phone calls. We've done it before, and but this is very, very important at this point to call your congressman. Uh, Hope has put a tremendous amount of effort into this, and uh, she goes on these trips. Uh, she pays for these trips. Uh, one way you can help her and encourage her is there is the uh, Jason's Law Fund, uh, uh, a significant portion of the Big Rig uh, CD by David um, Ayers and Barry Allen will be donated to Hope. Um, you can go and purchase the Big Rig CD. As a matter of fact, Alan's going to play, um, say a prayer for Jason uh, in a few minutes. And uh, you can get a, a preview of that if you haven't heard it already. As a matter, matter of fact, uh, Congressman Tonko used the words to that song uh, when he addressed uh, Congress, I believe it was last month. Um, so you can purchase your CD on Ask the Trucker. Just go to the Big Rig CD fund. Um, thank you very much, Hope. We're in much gratitude for all the work and sacrifice you've done to Congressman Tonko and uh, also to everybody who was at that press conference for supporting Jason's law. Uh, next, I just want to quickly, because um, I know time's running down, talk about the first annual Truck Driver Social Media Convention, which is going to be held in Tunica, Mississippi, on October 15th. Uh, we have a new sponsor to add. The TA Petro has jumped on board with us. Uh, we're very grateful to them for their support for the professional driver. And uh, I just want to tell you who's going to be there. Kyla Lieberg from Truckers Against Trafficking will be there. Hope Rivenberg will be there. David Ayers and Barry Allen. Uh, the St. Christopher's Fund and all our speakers, and the speakers are tremendous. We really encourage you to uh, go to www.truckingsocialmedia.com and look at this event. Um, we're going to have speakers. Um, Rich Wilson, who just called in from Trans Products, uh, will be there uh, speaking about the regulatory issues going on. We'll have a social media speaker. Um, we have uh, James McCormick from uh, Trucking um, Careers of America. We have Eddie Gachui from Trip Sheet Central, and also Paul Taylor from uh, Truckers Justice Center. So that's www.truckingsocialmedia.com. And, um, and again, uh, thank you very much for joining us tonight, and I'm going to pass it on over to Alan. All right, she's running. Boy, we had some technical things we had to get through tonight. 
All right, well, we're less than three minutes to go here, winding down. We won't even have time to do an ending song. But, hey, thanks for joining us, and uh, everybody, hope you enjoyed the show. Keep up with our shows at blogtalkradio.com forward slash truthabouttrucking, and be sure to bookmark us and add us to your favorites. And come join us over at our blog at astrotrucker.com. So on behalf of Donna and for Truth About Trucking Live, I'm Alan Smith. Smith, uh, Special thanks to uh, all our guests again for being on the show. Drive safe, everybody, and thanks for listening.